there was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was of what was sold and it was distributed to each as any had need to each as any had need this is an apt verse to support the tenet of just peace in the marketplace that all as megan reminded us that all should live in dignity sharing such that each one has enough this culture of generosity among the earliest Christians and the willing sharing of resources, it was a natural outgrowth of the spirit which enlivened the early church. In the description of the people of the way following the Pentecost, this community is described as dwelling in worship, sharing with each other, fellowshipping and offering each other according so that everyone would have enough, that no one was in need. It is a beautiful image of community. And it's an ideal that many of us, many Christians, think is one of those examples of something that is idealistic and unattainable. It's meant maybe for monastic communities or an experimental uh, intentional community of idealistic 20-somethings after college. Speak for myself. But not for real life. Sure, we can be generous. But that kind of trusting, extravagant generosity is not realistic in the world. What strikes me about the description of the early community is that it is... Exactly that. It is trusting and it is generous. And what I read between the lines of those descriptions in Acts, both in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, talk about this idea of enough and having so that no one has need. Sharing out of abundance. To me, this sounds like a description of a community that is practiced in discernment. Both personal discernment and communal, communal discernment. Personal in that asking that question, how much do I need? What can I let go? And the examples they give are lands and houses in that text. What is too much? It is an honest and spirit-filled assessment. Luke gives the example following the text that was read this morning, quoting from Acts 4, a man named Joseph who the community called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. His name suggests that the gifts that he offered arise out of concern for his fellow Christians in community. And then after the example of Barnabas is Ananias and Sapphira, a more, uh, what's the word? It has, there's a little bit more drama in that story. But they're given not as an example of withholding wealth, but as being dishonest in their discernment and dishonest in their giving, in their practice of giving. Pretending to the community that they have given everything from the proceeds of the lands that they sold, but actually holding something back. If they had truly felt they needed those resources for themselves, they could have been open about that in their community where the intention and practice was to distribute to each as any had need. 
We are now faced with this jubilee season before us, with discernment questions about how much we need and how much we will both share among ourselves and care for others through our programs, through our staffing, and through our other resources. And it's a season in which we will hopefully be in honest discernment about the needs both of this congregation and we will be challenged to do personal discernment about our individual needs and where we are called to lay down our resources in sharing. And even in this coming uh, budget discernment, those who are, who are parts of councils know that we've been looking at budgets and lining up numbers. And even in this time, in these next, this next month or two, we'll be called to realize that our wealth, this endowment that we've counted on for these many years, is not an endless and bottomless pool. We have been generous with it. And it will be enough but we're spending it now. So we will look at what our practices are and what we anticipate going forward. Trusting the generosity of those among us, of individuals, of households, that we can maintain, that we can grow, that we can continue to share. The description of the early church community fits well with some reading that I've been doing this week by Tink Tinker, which some of you probably read in Buffalo Shout, Salmon Cry. He describes what he calls the American Indian worldview as a structure that tends toward, instead of toward a hierarchical structure as Western European uh, society has structured itself, tends instead toward a worldview that is to the contrary uh, issues those up and down hierarchies in favor of lateral social constructs that are more egalitarian and predicated, he says, on balance and harmony. And he goes on to say that this does not imply neutralizing or dismissal of the uniqueness of persons within the greater whole. He clarifies that while some might look at the, on this kind of uh, lateral structuring as communist and sharing among people as communist, what it really is is communityist. I love this language of communityist. It's a worldview that values discernment of sharing that sees that resources go to each as any has need. If you were in Melissa's Sunday school class a few weeks ago, which is what, maybe eight or ten people? You will have encountered an image that probably the rest of us have seen on Facebook. It's an image that shows three people behind a fence. I'm going to pretend that this is the fence. There are three people behind a fence, and in front of it is the baseball game. Perhaps we can pretend it is the Cubs winning. <laughs> I know there are people here who, just, who appreciate that. So in front of the front fence, there are three people. There is a tall person, there is a medium-sized person, and there is a short person. You probably all recognize the image I'm talking about now. So you will also have seen then that the tall person can see very easily. The middle person can maybe, if he or she stands on tiptoe, see what's happening in the game. But little shorty over here can't see anything. But then in the second cell of this, of this 
uh, little cartoon, you see that each of the people is standing on a box. So the tall person can see everything, even better. The middle person can see pretty well now, but the little short person still behind the box, still behind, even in the box, still behind the wall, can't see a thing. They all have the same thing, and you see the caption that says this is equality. So then in, the, in a, an additional cell, you see that actually the tall person is standing right on the ground, seeing just fine. The middle person standing on one box, also seeing just fine. And the short person finally on two boxes can see the Cubs win the World Series. <laughs> and this, it's captioned, is justice. A just distribution to each as has need. To eat as has need. I have also seen, and I'm not sure exactly where this fits into this worldview, an additional caption in which there is no fence. So we don't need. And maybe that's what God's ultimate vision is for us. When I was a kid, I was one of, well, I still am, one of 13 cousins across a span of about that many years. I'm the eldest. My grandma always thought uh, it was very important for each of us to be treated fairly. So at Christmas time, we would all get, all 13 of us, 13 year age span, the same gift. <laughs> so, because that's what's fair. Uh, invariably, it meant we got something uh, pretty generic or useful. Uh, and it's not that I can't appreciate socks or pajamas or when you're a sleeping bag. Uh, but it's not, and I understand that for my grandma, this, there's also an element of what's easy, because 13 is a lot of kids. But it was also impersonal, and it didn't really take into account the needs of each of us. I already had a sleeping bag. Perhaps some of us have heard the expression, when you are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And it seems like on the internet, nobody can figure out who to attribute that to. I looked. But maybe it's also true that when you're used to equality, each of us standing on the same box, when you're used to equality, justice feels like oppression. What I hope for is that we may come to a place that we can understand that all of our well-being is tied up with each other. That we can be community-ist in our approach to giving and receiving and sharing. I am not by any means suggesting that this is simple. God's purpose for creation, as we hear it in Isaiah, is a world in which God's people will build houses and live in them, shall plant and eat, shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity. But, and this is as the ecumenical call to just peace states, the journey is difficult. We recognize that we must face up to the truth along the way. We must come to realize how often we deceive ourselves and are complicit with violence. We learn to give up looking for justifications for what we have done and train ourselves instead in the practice of justice. And this means confessing our wrongdoings, giving and receiving forgiveness, and learning to reconcile with each other. And I would suggest that it also involves confessing the wrongdoing of our ancestors and admitting our continued complicity 
and repairing that damage, both relational and economic. Well, I said earlier that the church has tended to view the, that early church model of communityist living to be idealistic, idealistic. Uh, Anabaptists have actually tended a little bit more than other parts of the church to take that community's way of life seriously. Just like we've taken the Sermon on the Mount seriously as a way of being a peace people. Hutterites, for sure, have taken that seriously, living in colonies. Uh, and Mennonites have, in their various travels around the, the, the world, also sometimes lived in colonies, aided each other with mutual aid and sharing, have continued to support uh, uh, mutual aid organizations and service and dedicated themselves throughout the world. But historically, we have rarely thought at what cost our shared wealth among us Mennonites has come at the expense of those among whom or on whose land we have settled. We have shared among ourselves plowing the fields and scattering and counting on God's blessing for our community. While communities around us grow in poverty and in resentment. My ancestors in what is now the Ukraine settled indigenous land because they were invited by a government and became very wealthy in comparison with their neighbors and insular. And the pattern repeated itself in Paraguay and throughout Central America when Russian Mennonites moved to those places. And while farmers, my ancestors in Saskatchewan, uh, didn't build colonies, they certainly farmed and built on land where indigenous people had lived and made their living. And we here in this worship space, and we name it and claim it that we are worshiping on land belonging to the Duwamish people. So how can we take a page out of both the Acts Church, discerning the true nature of what each of us has need, and giving to each as each has need, and of this American Indian, non-hierarchical, communityist vision? Among the suggestions of what to do with our collective wealth, of our properties, of our endowment, has risen this idea of reparations. So if you participated, and I know many of you did, in the conversations about what we'll do with our, as we plan our campus, and if you've been around for a while, you'll know that we have some holdings here and with the MVS House on Capitol Hill. One of the ideas that arose that we were invited to respond to was this. If SMC sells property, decision, a decision will need to be made with regard to the use of the funds realized from the sale. SMC is embarking on a two-year jubilee process starting this fall. The campus planning team recommends that decisions regarding the use of the fund realized from the sale of property be considered as part of the jubilee discernment process. And the CP team also recommends that as a part of this jubilee process, consider, consideration be given to reparations, returning money or land to the people to whom the land originally belonged. One of the notions that arose in the group where I was gathered was that, it went even further, was that seeding decision-making about our resources, that would truly be jubilee. And Acts 2 is a jubilee text. 
That description of the spirit-filled church, that is written by the same author that wrote Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, standing up and proclaiming release. This is a natural extension of Jesus' jubilee message. I watched a short film this week called Reserve 107 that talks about the land in Saskatchewan where my ancestors settled. It's the story of a landless band, the young Chippewayan, who, like the Duwamish, are not officially recognized by their government. But in 1887, the government of Canada signed a treaty, Treaty 6, with the Chippewayan, creating Reserve 107 so that their band would have land at Stony Knoll, Saskatchewan. It was miles down the road from where my parents now live. But in the 10 years that followed, the Chippewayan could not, they, they tried their hand at farming, they couldn't quite make it, they scattered. And so that land was sold out from under them, sold to Mennonites, sold to Lutherans, possibly to people that I am related to. So, almost 100 years later, some of the remaining young Chippewaian went, some of that tribe, they went to the municipality of Laird, Saskatchewan, to state their claim. They went with trepidation, fearing that they would be rejected. They weren't. And what began then was a 30-year conversation between themselves and the Mennonite and Lutheran settlers, the descendants of those settlers, and MCC Saskatchewan got involved. And 30 years later, The Mennonites and the Lutherans and the young Chippewa nation signed together a covenant, a document that pledged to work together to bring resolution to the issues that history had left. And together, they continue fundraising toward lineage research for the Chippewaian and to buy back land but not let the Canadian government off the hook for that financial responsibility. These folk are still working out of the discernment of how to distribute to each as has need, and they're doing it together. We, standing on the land of the Duwamish, are not in quite the same situation. The population of the Seattle metro area is three times the population of Saskatchewan the whole province of Saskatchewan. But what I find in this story is hope for relationship, hope for open hearts, hope in covenant and in the commitment to just peace in which all will live in dignity. May our discernment of just peace for ourselves, for our congregation, be one in which we seek the dignity of all and in which we are open-hearted enough and generous enough to share with each as any has need.